Christina, welcome. Thanks so much for joining us. I really appreciate you taking some time out your your day uh, today to talk to us. Um, could you just tell people, people listening, um, a bit about yourself, your background and, and who you work for just now? Hi, Duncan. Thank you so much for having me today. It's great to be here uh, and thank you for the warm introduction. Uh, my name is Christina Gager, as you mentioned, and I'm the president of the Royal Incorporation of Architects in Scotland. Um, I'm not your normal president of the Royal Incorporation, <laughs> if I'm allowed to say that. Um, I'm the second female and the, the youngest ever. So it's been quite a roller coaster. Um, and I suppose everyone always wants to know a little bit about how I got here and about me. So I've always been really committed to kind of the creative reuse of buildings and also the kind of construction of a supportive network for the mm. profession, I suppose you could say, so that everyone's not operating individually, very much working in a collective. And essentially, my perspective on that is that it gives value to the traction of good design and allows for really good collaboration. So they're my two kind of passions that I've yeah. kind of strung together. And I've worked since graduation on a wide variety of projects, uh, education, buildings, universities, museum, um, design and domestic architecture. And I've been really, really lucky to spend a bit of time in Paris with Renzo Piano Building Workshop and, and over in New York with Sao Macau Architects. So oh, wow. I've had a bit of a varied career as an architect, um, even though I'm still relatively young. <laughs> um, and I moved back to Edinburgh um, at the end of 2014, I think it was. And I joined a fantastic practice called Helen Lucas Architects, uh, became professionally qualified and just got really stuck into architecture mm. in Scotland and there is so much expertise here and with regards to the creative reuse of buildings it's such a special place to be because mm. the architectural heritage is so rich and there's so much expertise there's so much appetite um, and it's just a fantastic world to become immersed yeah. in so alongside the practices kind of detailed kind of design and attention to detail in architectural conservation um, there's a whole world in Scotland that you can actually kind of get involved with and that was kind of my link into the Edinburgh yeah. Architecture Association and the link into the the Royal Incorporation um, and a few years later here I am yeah. so it's been as I said a roller coaster <laughs> but uh, a, a great journey I hope that gives a good summary yeah no it really does and I think it's so it's, it's really impressive the Paris and, and, and New York connections I knew about before but and, and, and of course I mean you're right the heritage that we have here in Scotland is, is 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 phenomenal, and especially places like Edinburgh and and, and Glasgow and, and various different places. Um, Christina, what what what's what are Rias's priorities just now? I suppose what what my question is: what are the things that you're working on, and the people listening to what 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 are the initiative initiatives, the programs? What's on the desk just now? That's a very good question. And I think at the moment, there's a lot on the desk. Mm, so normally yeah. there'd be two or three things. And at the moment, there seems to be about 50. But that's yeah. a great thing. There's so much energy at the moment. But I think there are a lot of challenges for the profession, very specific to the profession and the construction industry. Mm. Um, but they're quite widespread. But I'd say the overarching theme at the moment is trying to really get a message across about the impact that the built environment has on the climate emergency yeah. and on our everyday lives. So really trying to get the message across beyond the profession about how the built environment can benefit people and the planet in a very, I suppose that's a very broad brush statement, but almost that encompasses everything we're looking at at the moment, right yeah. from you know, professional indemnity insurance and, and really nitty gritty practice matters right the way through to liaising on very broad brush policies with Scottish government. Mm. So I think it's all encompassed in that actual, it's joining those dots between where we live, 
where we spend 90% of our time yeah, course, inside yeah. spaces and actually that whole policy and professional sphere that surrounds it so that's how it's got so complex you know recently but i mean within that there are so many strands uh, we there's you know there's a big push in terms of actually looking at how we can upgrade our existing housing stock in mm. scotland and um, there's a really big push in terms of actually bringing the consumer the client and everyone with us on that journey and yeah. um, so for example you know there's so much going on at Scot in scotland at the moment for cop 26 yeah. um, but the ris chose to actually um rather than necessarily do an event over in glasgow specifically we're doing nationwide events mm. and actually targeting you know families you know to actually yeah. engage with their coastline and understand tidal rises and fl you know flood levels and mm. the impact on built heritage and and actually try and join those dots between the kind of you know from your valiant heat pump advert on itv to david attenborough's programs to actually what you read in the press in terms of um the the fear of climate change and actually just trying to pull all of those things together in actually what does this mean what impact will it have where i live what impact does it have on my home and trying to get to the point where someone might ask okay, what can I do? And when they do ask that question, that there's somewhere they can maybe go to find out. And that's a missing link for us at the moment in terms of actually where we are as a profession and the expertise we have mm. and where the client and the consumer is in terms of actually yeah. where they want to spend money and what they might want to do. That's a really interesting point, isn't it? Because, uh, you know, far too often we, you know, we watch the kind of headline Attenborough uh, programmes and, and, you know, they, they are depressing isn't it when we see in particular the latest Attenborough one on Netflix about the the, the changes over his life and that's that's really quite quite distressing actually but but you're right far so we we kind of know and Jeff talks about this in detail we kind of know the things we have to give up we have to eat less meat you know we have to drive less and, and take less air travel but whilst whilst people understand the built environment as an issue there's there's not really that knowledge out there at the consumer as to what they have to do I don't think there is maybe heat pumps would be the first thing that springs to mind is is that does that kind of, would you agree with that? Yeah, definitely. I mean, I use this analogy a lot and I think other people do as well, but you know more about a car when you buy yeah. it than you do your house. Yeah. Um, and I think that is a real problem. And, you know, I am a, a passionate advocate for active travel. I am a very, very keen cyclist. But the fact is, as I've said this before already, sorry, but we do spend 90% of our lives yeah. indoors. And that indoor quality has an effect on our health, on our well-being, you know, far beyond that even yeah. um and i think there's all of a sudden a, um, a much greater opportunity to make that point and actually bring everyone with us on the understanding of how much value that has to everyone's lives um and air source heat pumps you're right they've they've become a bit of a buzzword <laughs> in the in, you know um at the moment and i think you know it, they are, you know, they're obviously heading in the right direction. They, they are a great piece of technology. Um, they're working towards, you know, using cleaner energy, and I think they they are going in the right direction. I think the issue for for myself and the profession is that actually they can be seen as a quick fix, yeah. and they are a piece of the puzzle. They're a piece of the bigger picture, um, and actually. I think one of our concerns is that there will be a knee jerk reaction to 
pull out gas boilers everywhere, put in air source heat pumps without too much understanding of what those buildings are doing. Um, whereas actually an air source heat pump really needs a good building fabric. There needs to be quite a holistic approach to um, changing a, an energy source in, in a property. So yeah. actually there needs to be a little bit of, of kind of a step back in terms of the air source heat pump is part of a solution, but yeah. it shouldn't be it shouldn't be on its own and it shouldn't be the only item. So I think England and Wales have obviously um, launched an initiative um, this week in terms of a grant for air source heat pumps. And there is a small mention in a lot of the press in terms of actually your property may need an insulation upgrade in order to, to mm-hmm. kind of get the benefits of an air source heat pump. Um, but I suppose one of my concerns is that the a gas boiler that isn't very old is taken out. So there's a carbon footprint there. Uh, an air source heat pump is installed and it's in a property that might be quite leaky. It might not be uh, insulated well enough. And actually there's a knock on uh, yeah. en- energy cost for the consumer there. So that there needs to be a little bit more yeah. of, a, of an understanding and that's not to slow things down. I don't want to slow yeah, things down yeah. by any means, but I think that's where professional led and a really holistic approach to these things has so much value and it's actually how can we bridge that gap how can we help the those consumers and clients when they're spending quite a lot of their own money still on these upgrades to actually get the best quality and the best product um, from a very holistic point of view not just a single switch point of view i think that's that's really interesting just christina because we so we you're right i mean heat pumps have become such a buzzword and i, and I think you know i've my, my elderly uncles have been asking me about heat pumps and, and that's when you know that there's a, there's a, there's a, they're becoming more mainstream. But I suppose going, going back to the earlier point, we've, we've linked that built environment and climate change. We know, we know there's a, a direct issue with, with how we heat and live in our homes, but, but I guess um, looking at what that holistic approach would be, or looking at how we then tackle that, what, what would be your advice? I suppose with that in mind, what is it we need to do to our buildings? As you said, heat pumps absolutely part of the jigsaw. But what are the other parts in that jigsaw that make it, you know, make up a more holistic approach? Well, for me, there's kind of three points to this, and it's it's not the climate emergency is always at the forefront of my mind. But it's not just about energy efficiency. You know, in the opportunity to do this, as I mentioned, that there's also health and well-being and the opportunity that brings when you're taking a holistic approach and also the the maintenance of properties within that as well so actually if you are taking a holistic approach you've got the opportunity especially going back to that heritage building stock in Scotland where there's a lot of pre you know 1919 architecture I think there's there's an opportunity to to tackle all these in one because you know, a good analogy is actually the performance of stone. When stone is dry, actually, and there's a certain thickness, it can perform very, very well. You know, it's got thermal mass. It actually has quite high insulative properties. But as soon as it's wet, that can decrease by up to yeah. 60%. Now, there's a lot of particulars involved in that, and that's a very general comment. But that's actually the impact that a leaky gutter can have and poor maintenance can have. So actually, when you're taking a holistic approach and you're not just tackling one element, you are looking at that whole envelope, that whole mm-hmm. Fabric and how it's performing. And the decisions that would be made and the investment that would be made would have real longevity. Whereas actually, if, if those items aren't tackled or work, certain elements of work are done and, and others isn't actually, you might be making step changes, but it's a you're not building into that in that longevity, essentially, yeah. um, which I think is an opportunity that's there at the moment. And I mean, one thing that's really hard is it's very product-led. 
um, yes. and manufacturer led. Um, and, you know, manufacturers are very experienced. They know their product inside out. But professionals and consultants exist for a reason. You know, we are there with the expertise. This is what we do, you know, and we are then ready to help with a huge appetite to kind of get this right. So actually, how do we bridge that gap between the manufacturer and, and product-led approach and actually that professional knowledge. Um, and that's a lot of work that we're doing with Scottish Government at the moment to try and join those dots, but it's difficult. And that, that's the value for money argument, isn't it? Because I think it's far too often we hear in, in the media that, um, you know, a lot of the changes that we'll have to make are expensive, but they're expensive. Well, are they expensive? Because there's a context to that comment, isn't there? It's like how you look at the, if you as a resident or a consumer of products and a resident of a house, you know, what's value for money? Because those incremental changes actually may be really bad value for money over a longer term, yeah? Yeah, definitely. And I mean, we've seen, unfortunately, examples of that in the past with certain kind of uh, pockets of money rolling out for for upgrades. And they're very much done on a, a kind of ad hoc basis. And they may be effective for a certain period of time, but actually for the fabric of that building and the life of that building, they can have a really detrimental effect. Mm-hmm. And again, it comes back to the second point that I mentioned, the health and well-being, how these things are done really can have a direct impact on health and well-being. So the opportunity to use more natural materials Again, if the climate emergency is the driver for this, then it should run through everything we're doing. So it's that opportunity to use better materials that are vapor open and breathable and and actually, you know, really integrate this through everything we're doing. But again, if you're doing it on a on a piece by piece basis, you, you don't get that benefit. And, and of course, I mean, what, what you're saying, I completely agree with, and, and that's probably no surprise, no surprise to you, Christina, but so the health and well-being is a, is a really, I think is a very underrated, um, uh, an underrated um, addition to what we can do with, with good retrofit. But you've also, what you're talking about, there is also a much more holistic, a much more sustainable supply chain. If you're looking at products that, that and you're starting to look at products from a from a carbon intensity perspective as well, then what we're talking about is something that's a benefit not just to the consumer, but benefit to society, to the supply chain, yeah? Yeah, definitely. And I think it, it links into what you said before, Duncan, actually in terms of, you know, these things are expensive mm. and more natural building materials are expensive at the moment. But actually, if they became the norm, then, you know, the tables would turn. And I think this that's the point we're at at the moment in the, in the building industry. And I think there is a real need for that table to turn, if I'm honest, because actually working with heritage properties, working with existing constructions, you know, understanding how they work and really improving them, um, there are various properties over you know the last 40 years that have had pieces of insulation put in here and there everyone tries everyone does their best everyone does what they can and i think that's important not to take away from that at all but it's not about having enough insulation it's about how it meets how it joins you know are there gaps is it drafty and actually i think it's 40% of fuel bills can often be accredited to to drafts and gaps so it's yeah. it, that's a really huge you know if you use that 40% then actually that's also about energy escaping as well yeah. that's when you start to kind of can tell a story about where your carbon is is yeah. going if you think of it like that so i i think it's it's trying to actually produce something that's really robust and really delivering for the for the client and the consumer that's yeah. important um, and that's the the piece that can be missing and it's it's those kind of those cooled bridges those gaps those um it gets called holes in a bucket is a really common phrase that uh, yeah. chris morgan uses from john gilbert architects which i really like um and actually it's 
but yeah. that's that's what it is and that's that's almost where your money's going in your property if you think about it like that so if you put in an air source heat pump they they are still going to be there whereas actually if you address the fabric and really get it working hard for you um then actually if you then introduce an air source heat pump then your fuel bills may be reduced yeah. your property will perform better but i think it's it's a really scary place for, for clients and consumers yeah. because no one knows what the facts actually are what they actually should be doing it's a very consumer like confusing yeah confusing market at the moment and that 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 is a, a, an interesting well first of all uh, i'm glad you mentioned that 40 percent through your tightness because i knew i'd been ref i've been using that for about the past month and thought where did that come from so so you need to give me the reference where that was but but that that's a really important point because i think we had this discussion before we started about it's great that retrofit is in the news um and you can argue with the concept that you can argue with retrofit as a term but i think it's it's a fairly uh, easy term that people understand but but what what i what i think is perhaps not fully understood for people who have a technical background like yourself and to a lesser degree me is uh how that holistic approach um, works in practice. And I think that's a really good term you used there. I know Chris really well and, and hole in the bucket, but you, you have to look at things through a much more holistic way. And I guess for me, and I'm pretty sure for you, that's where you have to engage with professionals. Yeah, definitely. And it's interesting that you mentioned about the word retrofit there and how it's been used mm. at the moment. Cause I think the, the use in the profession has always been very much about, um, breathing new life and reinvigorating an existing building to yeah. ensure longevity. I think now it's it's used in very different ways, which again makes things confusing. Um, but you're you're completely right in your question there in terms of actually, you know, how can the profession engage? Hmm. So it's really it's really about how we can um, get professionals to engage with consumers in a way that allows them to take that journey with the knowledge that I think um, the products and services they buy will, will will be of value for money. And I think, I think just to be clear here, interesting what you you, you said earlier on. I think you and I are clear on this. Installing a heat pump is not retrofitting your home. <laughs> you know, yeah. and and but but I guess sorry for me rambling on the, the point. I think that we both would agree on is it's how you introduce professionals into that environment where they can take consumers along that journey in a way that gives us confidence that a product or when I say a product, I mean a retrofit product will be delivered to a standard that is um, there's value for money and, and future proof really. Yeah, I mean it's 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 that's the complexity that we're trying to to deal with at the moment in terms of changing that narrative from manufacturer led to professional led, and yeah. I suppose it's a challenge for the professional bodies, you know. And I, I say that as president in terms of actually there's maybe an attitude at the moment that architects are out there if people want them, actually I'd I'd maybe spin that on its head and say actually how do architects go out and help to provide these services to everyone, um, and that's the challenge that we have at the moment, and that's what we are trying to support our membership in doing to create programs connections that can actually allow that to happen engagement with communities local community councils local authorities yeah. um, and actually is there is there a structure there that can help delivery um, in terms of integration with the national planning framework and in terms of the local place plans that are going to come out you know and, and be developed more with yeah. communities is there an opportunity to actually look at and integrate a, a kind of retrofit or or look at our existing building stock within that approach maybe yeah. that's the link and the opportunity but it's definitely part of something that we are looking at as the royal incorporation in terms of supporting our members to 
to push us as a profession, yeah. you know, in terms yeah. of responsibility to go out and support communities and individuals. And what, and, and interestingly, because we, 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 you know, my day job is, is, is in retrofit. So, so we probably don't have a balance here of what's going on, but what, what is the split just now between how, you know, are architects involved in retrofit in the way that you think they should be? And also we mentioned here, you know, in terms of market delivery, how, if you're a private owner, you know, or, or indeed even an authority or, or RSL, how is retrofit delivered? Is it mainly contractor-led? How, what's the proportion, do you think, of, of, of design-led? And I'm not talking about innovating design, but, you know, design-led or, or, or contractor-led. And, and I guess the question would come on to how will your members, well, I think that's a great, I think that's a big opportunity for your members in terms of, how they can uh, develop new revenue streams, but how do you see that just now? What's what's your experience of 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 where architects are working just now and the opportunity? Well, I don't know what the actual split would be, Duncan. If I'm really honest, mm. and it's, I'm probably working in Edinburgh where there's so much heritage. Uh, yes. you know and protected building stock I'm probably slightly skewed in my own yeah, experience yeah. so it's different it's difficult for me to have a perspective almost nationwide in Scotland but I think there there is it's it's interesting because retrofit isn't new for architects yeah. actually this is the really interesting bit for from our perspective it's something actually that a lot of the profession have been doing for a really long time because our poor housing stock hasn't popped up overnight yeah. it's been here a long time <laughs> you know architects have been addressing leaky poor insulated buildings you know even you know i know the building regs has taken quite a long time to to kind of catch up um but often you know architects aren't necessarily always looking to deliver the minimum standard therefore yeah. it's actually been a part of our profession for a long time so it's not new no. so i mean in terms of dealing with um you know listed buildings and in conservation areas that approach has been integrated for a very long time and there's mm. often there's there's often a trickle down to, to lots of different areas of work as well and mm. um, also in terms of the drive to use natural materials that's been there for a long time but the market isn't quite there to support it and it tends to sometimes be a, a value engineering exercise or you know get caught yeah. out but it's not something that the profession is unaware of so i think yeah. There's a, I always say about joining the dots and links, but this is this is the big picture that we're trying to put together. I think that knowledge is there within the profession. There is a level of upskilling needed in terms of actually the policy acceleration that we will need to see to deliver net zero for 2045 is going to challenge every profession, every industry. Um, and almost if you don't jump on board, you know, you're obsolete. And actually, so there's, there's a progression for everyone, including architects in there. But I think the the split in terms of kind of designer-led or, yeah. or product-led, I, I imagine in terms of our kind of domestic housing stock in Scotland and where we are, I'd say is probably weighted to more product-led yeah. and, and kind of construction-led. And that's the difficulty um, yes. because essentially that's where that knowledge and expertise that our profession carries doesn't get carried through into the the buildings and the, the environments that people are experiencing. And that's a real shame because that's knowledge we have in Scotland that can be used. Um, and I think it's often, you know, to be really blunt, it's because consultants can be seen as expensive. Architects can be seen as expensive. There's an idea that architects produce very shiny, glossy buildings and they're looking to spend people's money. Yes, there is a very glamorous side of architecture that's been presented throughout the 90s and noughties, but architecture is changing. You know, that's not the driver anymore. Um, you know, I can't speak for everyone, um, but there is a real we're at a real meeting point where that idea of 
lots of glass, lots of concrete, lots of harsh lines, you know, those beautiful minimalist buildings actually needs to meet high performance, high delivery and longevity. Um, and I think that's where the profession is at the, the cutting edge at the moment. And I know this is something we touched on a little bit earlier, but um, one thing I think that there is in the profession is slight nervousness in terms of actually architects throughout history have always taken risks. They've always been pioneers in terms of what you can build, what you can draw, how thin something can be, what can you push. And actually the market at the moment doesn't allow for that innovation. There's a lot of concern over what you are responsible for, what risk you're taking. And that going back to one of uh, your first questions about, you know, what's on the table for the RIS. And I mentioned the professional indemnity insurance market. You know, that is a big key factor. It's a big it's a big driver in terms of actually the approach practices are taking. So I think Mm -hmm. there's also when the holistic approach we're talking about it in terms of how you approach a building, I think actually it also relates to how the industry is operating to deliver this challenge Um, because if we can get that pioneering possibility back in terms of actually we are willing to learn how to do things and take risks on how to do things and actually okay some things may fail and that's not acceptable but you we need to go through a learning process of testing Um, and the difficulty I have is in terms of it takes a long time to deliver a building, you know, yeah. and when, when we talk about 2030, 2045 targets, they're often kind of maybe two or three, three or four max buildings away. Yeah. Um, so we really, in terms of actual building time and, and design time, you know, we really need to push. So yes. it's, it's again, trying to achieve that balance between do we have time to test and pioneer yeah. or actually, you know, do we just need to get on and do it and learn from those mistakes as we go? But how do we do that as an industry? That's that's a really good point, isn't it? Because you're right, you know, buildings are something that when you evaluate and it takes time and and and, and I think the build, the evaluation of, of whether it be new build and uh, between um, uh, design and delivery and then and then use is, is something that has a lag in it. So I, I think that's a really interesting point. Is, is, is there a hybrid model that allows us to to, to do good work just now that, that may be you know able to be upgraded further in four, five, six years when we, that's a, a really good point. J- just come back to, so I think, I mean, we, we've covered the fact that the, the built environment is so crucial. I think, as as you do, that the professionals are at the heart of good design and 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 how how we engage them. Is there some how how do we then I suppose not democratize? How do, how do we then uh, make architects more accessible, or how do we sell architects and and the products or the services that they provide in a way that's more accessible to the public? Because I think you're right. There is a perception out there if you engage an architect, then that's expensive. But I think we have to counterbalance that between things that are contractor or manufacturer led and the risks that are associated with that. So I, I guess in another long and rambling way, Christina, I'm asking you, what are the inherent risks in there if we don't engage professionals? Not to use a tagline, but I'm going to start with build once for the future, which is something that the RIS use a lot and is something I really believe in. And I think that's what we can achieve Mm-hmm. with professional-led approaches, we can be building to, to last uh, with flexibility, with adaptability, so that, as you say, if in 30 years' time there's a huge shift in the climate and we actually do need to adapt to that, the buildings are robust enough that actually they have flexibility in them in terms of use and and maybe fabric even to a point. So actually, 
it's almost, it's trying to understand. I'm going to pause for a second because it's not, I often say this the wrong way around because I'm continuously kind of presented with the problems we have right now, right this moment. It's always about what we're not doing or what we could be doing. And I often quite like to kind of pause and say, actually, where do we need to be? Mm-hmm. And yeah. and actually, if you forget about the problems we've got now, which is hard to do, but actually think about where we need to be, then it's about how we get there, yeah. not how we deal with the problems right now. So I think there's a little bit of, um, and it's often seen as naive, and I understand that because there needs to be immediate action and there are immediate problems. But I think one of the issues is, is that, you know, one of the phrases I hate most if I'm told on site is, um, you know, this is the way we've always done it. I, I could, you know, personally yeah. as an architect, um, that, that doesn't matter anymore. You know, it's not about the way it's always been done. Don't do yeah. what you've always done before, you know, <laughs> actually let's, let's be doing it different. You know, yeah. it's a bit like trying to get back to the new normal, you know, it makes you think, was it actually that great? You know, <laughs> do, yeah. do I want to go back? So, yeah. you know, it's not that there's not lessons from the past that there are, our buildings tell us so much about what we did yeah. wrong and what we, what we can get right. And that learning um, can be continued on a lot more kind of scientific and technical level now now in terms of performance uh, evaluation and when buildings are built there's a lot of testing going on to see how they perform in reality to how they perform on paper and that opportunity is there but I think just going back to you know almost getting those professionals involved and 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 why it is that building wants for the future it's making that public purse investment and or that client or consumer investment work as Mm. hard as possible and I really do think the bridge is when you go from kind of Scottish government policy level, you know, and you, at one end, and then you've got the the client and the consumer at the other. There are whole stages, you know, in between that. One being kind of local authority that I've seen in kind of community projects really help and support communities to de- deliver projects. And I wonder if there's that opportunity for, you know, consumers as well. Again, with the bridge of actually community local community plans and place plans coming in with the national planning framework for i think there's actually an opportunity there for a a real community and local connection network Mm. that professionals can actually plug into in terms of actually being there and Mm. being available for for support Um, so i think there is an opportunity i'm not quite sure how it would work i think uh, there'd probably be you know Mm. again national variations but i think there is just that engagement at community level is something that we really need to get right i think that's that's quite an interesting quite an interesting topic actually um and i guess you know just going back to what you were saying earlier was uh, and i, I like that idea about what, what is it you want what what is it the end product that you want and and starting with that question and and i think without trying to put words in your mouth i think that that is where professionals whether they be consultants or architects will have a client's best interest at heart because essentially what, what they are is accompanying you on that or, or or projecting that journey in a way that can be practically implemented um that's that's, that's really interesting um and have you found you mentioned there um some of the on-site issues um i've never encountered those um uh, <laughs> he says no of course we have everyone has and and but I wonder whether at the same time turning the, the argument around, do you think that when you do work with contractors who may not have, have or who have been div- working towards, you know, previous standards, objectives, goals, whatever, that when you're developing something that's more sophisticated and holistic, 
there is a there is a there is a sort of light goes on at some point and says actually this is really good. Is is, is that the experience you've 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 had? Because yeah, definitely. I mean, to be fair, I work. I've got the privilege of working with some fantastic contractors, so I, ca- I cannot complain at all. Mm. Um, and there's definitely that ambition in terms of um, understanding the 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 bigger picture. I think there's a lot of realization through trades that actually they are also needing to take a very similar journey in terms of learning uh, and upskilling in order to move w- with mm. the direction of travel. Um, so again, it, you know, things are going to move so quickly that you can maybe become obsolete if, you, yeah. if, you're, if you're not thinking that way. And it's definitely, um, it's definitely evident, especially in terms of what technology is available, what products are available, how, how we can approach things. And, and for my for myself I've always worked on traditional contracts actually I've been incredibly lucky throughout oh, my yeah. career and I've, I've benefited from having you know contractor input and mm. contractor as part of the design team that's crucial yeah. because at the end of the day we can draw until we're blue in the face but the person on site needs to know how that piece of tape joins yeah. those two materials and actually how those two you know bits of timber come together and it's it's those conversations that are really valuable it goes back to the leaky yeah. bucket yeah. It, it's not the architect that that, that covers up those holes, you yes. know, and yeah. it's it's that teamwork that achieves that performance that will actually deliver that quality for the client and the consumer. So it's very much a team effort. It's it's not solo. There's the research and design phase that the, the obviously the architect can be driving, but as soon as you move on to actual construction, it is a team effort on site. But I think there is a real move across the whole industry, you know, n- not just it, you know, in in engineering. I'd say so far as trickling into the supply chain to actually move in that direction and definitely an appetite. And that's, that, that again goes back to so sort of framing the discussion we've had just now. I think that, you know, it's, it's a bit defining retrofit and, and perhaps looking, I think you, you, you mentioned that hole in the bucket there and, and how we need to take a more sophisticated look at what retrofit, retrofit really is. I, I think that has to be something that's articulated at a, a higher level rather than just the sound bites on, on retrofit. That's just my my personal personal opinion. But what you're saying here, and I think is, it, it, it plays really well with what, what we're trying to do in this podcast, is you're, you're saying there's an opportunity around health and well-being. And I think what you're saying is an opportunity around a more sophisticated construction market, which, which by virtue is societally just a better thing in general. Yeah, definitely, because we can't do anything alone. And I think, yeah. especially with the response to the climate emergency, you know, carbon's clever. When you try and chase the, you know, yeah. kind of follow the carbon footprint of some of something, it, you're crossing, a, a, you know, through six sectors of industry. So everyone's got to come with us. It, it can't be an individual effort. But I think when we do look at the kind of percentages that the built environment contribute um, and heating and cooling contribute, then that's when I feel that architects have a really key role, but we are not, we're not alone in this by any means. Um, and I think it is about trying to to take everyone with us through this process. Um, but it's, it, it is very difficult. I mean, there has been more collaboration and communication as a result of the pandemic than ever before. Really? So, which has been fantastic. Yeah. There's a, that, just, I think it just makes consultation yeah, easier. It easier, makes meetings yeah. easier. So that, I think that's really accelerated that mm. kind of pan industry response, but there will always be pockets of space that want business as usual. Um, and it's just actually, how do we break into those and how do we bring people with us? Yeah. Um, and again, there's a delivery mechanism that we're missing here, which we kind of all keep skirting around. Yeah. And it's, it is actually that, how do you deliver this? How do you make professionals accessible? How do we make that expertise accessible to everyone? Yeah. Um, and how does the, I suppose, 
not to go into this in too much detail, but how does the procurement system actually value that expertise and that attitude to building once for the future? And I don't, again, just mean within the architect's fees, but the whole consultancy fees, yeah. you know, the actual whole life project cost. Um, and, you know, not just looking at that contract sum, looking at what that building will cost for how long it's been designed to last. Yeah. And I think that's a change in attitude that we are starting to see, but could be the real driver across the industry as a whole that we're talking about. Christina, it's been lovely talking to you as as usual, and we're kind of almost out of time. I appreciate we've taken taken up um, almost an hour of your time just now. And, and I hate to ask this because you said earlier on, you know, about quick fixes and easy solutions, and of course that's not what, not what we should be looking at. But if if you could leave us with one thing, and we had a really interesting uh, chat with Scott McCauley a few weeks ago, are there any are there any quick wins? Are there anything we could do? And I think some of the the the, the interesting thing you spoke about about collaboration is there something that we can do just now as initiatives that we can start to look at in a way that brings people together what would you leave us with in terms of a message well i mean i think scott's completely on point and i think it it kind of fits into the fact that there is that expertise in the industry and how do we share that um and how do we bring the next generation with us as well those studying at, at schools of architecture or studying construction or doing apprenticeships at the moment actually can we get the expertise and share it with them can we cross collaborate how do we actually bring engineering expertise into the architectural field mm-hmm. and actually get that pan-industry movement in terms of knowledge sharing. Um, and it, it's moving into a bit of open source. If one practice is doing it well, can we share it? Can we move quicker by actually using mm-hmm. our strengths and weaknesses? But we need a really strong network to do that. And it's removing an element of competition. So there has to be a strong market to support that. So there's a little bit of a, a kind of a difficult web there. But yeah, I completely agree with Scott that actually there can be a lot more cross-collaboration of sharing of, of knowledge and experience. That can be through CPD, which is something the RIS are, are, are looking at, at doing in terms of competency for the industry, which is a big driver at the moment, but actually, more importantly, that upskilling and, and cross-collaboration. But it doesn't have to just be architects. And I think that's the important thing. One thing I see across Scotland a lot is that there's a huge amount of energy going into these conversations, but it's often the same people. And actually, there's it's how do we break out of that silo? How do we actually connect to that wider network, those wider um, industries and pull them into the conversation, not only for their expertise to, to be spoken to, but to bring their expertise in. And I think that's that's the next piece for me. It's a really good, a really good point to end on. Christina, thank you so much. Really appreciate your time. Thanks. Thank, thanks so much, Duncan. Thanks for having me.